Birth, the Forgotten Feminist Issue podcast was founded by me, Alicia Staines, maternal health lobbyist, birth nerd and mother of five. I share evidence-based research along with reflections from women who've birthed, researchers, fellow lobbyists and other maternal health professionals. I want to change the culture around birth and maternal health care and I want to get women inspired to embrace birth and motherhood in the feminist movements. If you find value in the work I do and you'd like to connect further, please consider becoming a Patreon of this podcast by heading to patreon.com forward slash Alicia Staines. Welcome to episode 18 of Birth the Forgotten Feminist Issue. Today with me, I have Emily Callender. She is a health economist, um, which some might wonder what has that got to do with maternity care, but it's actually got a lot given that we've got such um, a system that I guess spends so much money but doesn't necessarily deliver good outcomes. Can you explain what a health economist is and perhaps because you're quite specialised in the health economics field in that it's often maternal healthcare? Yes, yes. So I uh, am an Associate Professor of Health Economics at Monash University and health economics is a really, really broad field. Uh, and so it is essentially concerned with how we distribute resources uh, within the healthcare system. Uh, and so health economists can focus on lots of different areas. So some might focus on diabetes or cardiovascular disease and I focus on maternal and child health. So I, I always focus on the two together because I don't think you can look at one without the other. Um, but, but in terms of a, a big picture aim, we're looking to make sure that the way that we invest the resources within maternal and child health is done so efficiently. So we produce the greatest outcomes from that investment, but also equitably. So how we distribute the resources amongst different population groups uh, and essentially just uh, interrogating the way that that's currently done uh, and making comment about how that could be better done in the future. So we know um, that the way maternal health services is delivered is not necessarily good value for money. Um, can you explain why and perhaps um, the, the, the way things are funded and, and how it does support over-intervention and I guess like a lack of evidence-based care? Yeah, yeah. So it's important to consider two things um, as a, a subtext to that. So one is that there's 300,000 women that give birth across Australia each year, uh, and that number is increasing. So despite us having a, a relatively low fertility rate, um, just because of population growth, we are seeing an increase uh, in the number of women giving birth every year. So it's expected to be around 3.5 uh, million women giving birth over the next 10 years. So it's a really, in terms of volume, it's a really big area of our healthcare system. Uh, but in terms of investment, so $7 billion is invested annually in maternal and reproductive health services uh, across Australia. So $7 billion is a lot of money. So it's maternal healthcare is a really big area of the healthcare system, both in terms of that volume uh, and that sheer amount that is invested. Um, because of the structure of the delivery of healthcare within Australia and the funding of healthcare in Australia, it's also quite a complex area in terms of value. Uh, so 
sorry, I'm just going to, you know, give the, the bigger picture, um, you know, uh, view here, um, because it's really important to understanding um, those, those issues of value. So we have uh, healthcare delivered through a combination of public hospital, uh, out of hospital, um, community-based uh, care, as well as private hospital care. Uh, and we have a, a combination of different funders within Australia. So we have public hospital funders that fund everything in the public hospital system. Uh, we have Medicare that funds out of public hospital uh, services, including subsidising the cost of private hospital care. Uh, and then we potentially have private health insurers um, contributing as well as individuals through out-of-pocket costs. And it's also important to note that individuals through out-of-pocket costs actually contribute more to the funding of health care than private health insurers do. Um, so individuals through out-of-pocket fees um, are a really big part of, of the, uh, the funding of healthcare care uh, within Australia. And so because we have this uh, essentially compartmentalised system uh, with different funders funding different components of care, but as a woman, you're still the one person who's going into the public hospital one day to have your antenatal appointment and then you sit down to your GP uh, and you see them, you uh, have to pay out of pocket for your GP, but you don't for the public hospital antenatal service, you then go and have the 10,000 blood tests that you have to when you're pregnant. Um, and so you're actually moving between different providers, um, but also different funders. So public hospital funders fund your in-hospital care, Medicare will fund part of your GP service and part of your blood tests. Uh, and you'll also pay part um, through uh, your out-of-pocket costs. And so we have this system that's quite compartmentalised in terms of who's funding the care. But as I said, it's still the same people who are moving through these different silos. Uh, and then the way that we're funding care is based upon activities. So we have what we call activity-based funding in Australia. So every time you go and receive a service, that service gets provided funding uh, for providing um, uh, that care to you. So every time you go to a public hospital, uh, the public hospital will get funded. Every time you go to your GP, the GP uh, will get funded. And so we have this perverse incentive just because of the nature of funding that the more services that are provided, the more funding that our, our provider uh, will actually receive. Uh, and so in addition to that, different types of services will receive uh, different amounts of funding. So within pregnancy, uh, public hospitals will get funded significantly more around double more for a cesarean section birth compared to what they'll get funded for, for a vaginal birth. Uh, and so we have these different economic levers that are influencing or that could be influencing um, how providers choose to structure and deliver care. Uh, and so uh, part of that funding is, of course, um, to recognise that providing a cesarean section uh, costs a lot more uh, in terms of theatre time and specialist staff time. Uh, and so that does, of course, cost a lot more uh, than, public, than just a vaginal birth within a public hospital. Uh, but, but to an extent, one also has to question, uh, particularly in the private sector, so within private hospitals, um, private hospitals also get funded more to provide cesarean section births. You do have this potential for a perverse incentive to be created whereby cesarean sections can be funded at a higher rate. Uh, and so models of care that... Um, uh, produce a greater number of vaginal births will, of course, come with that um, potential cost that, that the amount of funding is actually reduced. So basically it's like incentivising surgery, which 
It it can be, um, and so there it's it's that dual nature of higher cost services cost a lot more to provide, um, and so they do get funded at a higher rate. Uh, but when you have this strange little public-private system that we have within Australia, where some services, uh, particularly public hospital services, are provided on a not-for-profit basis, but then other components of our healthcare system are provided on a for-profit basis um, because they're, they're privately provided um, uh, services um, and they have that provided in the market, that, that um, imperative uh, to cover their costs and to make a profit. We could see a situation um, where there is that um, motivate the, the financial motivation to provide higher cost services. And so it's definitely not just within Australia and it's not just within maternity care. Um, we see it across all other areas um, of healthcare uh, and we see it across all other countries that do have this activity-based funding system. Yeah, can you explain, it's something that consumers um, after, I mean, maybe for some time now, I guess looking at the New Zealand model bundled funding, it was actually mentioned by IPA in maternity care, so the Independent Hospital Pricing Authority. For those who don't know, it was set up by Kevin Rudd to basically provide hospitals with payment, but independently. So um, I guess more evidence-based in a way, but then we still need to be really moving towards bundled funding. Um, New Zealand does it uh, reasonably well. Obviously, their midwives aren't paid enough, so that's a problem with their system. Why do you think bundled funding is the way forward? I mean, we see it if it's allocated to the woman that she's then directing where the money goes. Ideally, the service then would be, you know, that supply-demand if we look at economics. Um, so we think that it has the possibility to change the way services are delivered because women are then going to be demanding a certain type of service. Can you explain how it works and whether you agree with that? Um, yes, yeah, so I'm a big advocate for activity-based funding. Um, I think it will give a greater transparency over the costs of services um, and the amount that a service will get provided. So, so even from a, a public hospital um, or private hospital um, care provision point of view, uh, it will give certainty as to the amount of funding uh, that will be received. Um, and then it's up to the hospitals um, uh, as individual entities themselves to determine what's going to be the best way to manage this funding uh, and provide the best care that we can. Um, to women in the most efficient and equitable means possible. So I think it gives a lot of certainty as well because healthcare is this really funny area um, of the economy uh, that both the providers and also um, women themselves and, and patients in other um, areas of healthcare, where you have absolutely no idea what the total cost of your care is going to be. Um, so um, in other areas of the economy, for example, you're going to buy a new car. So you'll walk up to the new car um, dealership uh, and you'll know exactly what it is that you're going to be walking away with and you'll know exactly what it is that it's going to cost you. Um, and then you can make an informed decision um, whether that cost uh, is worth uh, what you're going to receive in terms of the good that you're purchasing. Whereas healthcare is 
totally different um, to, to any other area of the economy uh, in that women don't actually know at the start of their care what it is that they're going to receive. So what's going to happen to them on this pregnancy journey uh, and importantly, what it's going to cost them. Uh, and so just because you're giving birth in a public hospital, for example, doesn't mean that you're not going to have any out-of-pocket costs. Um, so you're going to have to see the general practitioner for any referrals. You're going to have to have blood tests or uh, ultrasounds in the community where there might be an out-of-pocket component. So women have absolutely no, no idea what it is that they're going to actually receive on this little journey. Bundled funding will give some certainty um, around the total costs uh, to women themselves, but it will also give some certainty um, to the providers as to what it is that they actually have to fund an episode of care. And it takes away that incentive to provide the higher cost services. Uh, and so, of course, some women uh, will be picture perfect health, they have a normal, uncomplicated pregnancy, um, they'll cost uh, significantly less uh, than somebody who might have multiple risk factors and has a complicated pregnancy that requires that additional intervention. Uh, and so by incentivizing the provision of care that lowers risk factors uh, and that promotes good health, uh, it takes a preventative focus, hospitals will be, and all providers of care will be able to overall lower the costs of those women. Uh, and the more uh, preventative care, oh, sorry, the more women that they provide a preventative uh, and low risk level of care too, um, the more that they'll be able to reduce their overall costs of funding. Uh, and so it, it really, it promotes equity and it promotes efficiency because all women are, are treated equally uh, in terms of it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status or your morality. Uh, if you're a First Nations woman um, or, or a culturally and linguistically diverse woman, um, all women will have the same uh, essentially package of funding uh, with which to provide their care. And so we won't see um, what we do see at the moment, uh, whereby the more affluent uh, and urban dwelling uh, and non-Indigenous women receive the bulk of uh, Medicare funding, uh, whereas your lower socioeconomic status, Indigenous and rural and remote women receive less Medicare funding. Um, so, so you wouldn't see that situation. Every woman would actually have access to an equal amount of funding to cover the care. So from an efficiency and an equity point of view, very important. Yeah, absolutely with the equity. And I think uh, given it's, it's interesting that when you say like Indigenous women, uh, rural remote women, um, low socio women, often they're the ones that need the most support. Yet at, at the moment, exactly. they're receiving the least. If we look at it just from a financial point of view, when they're interacting with Medicare, which is often when they are receiving some type of antenatal birth um, or postnatal care. Um, do you uh, know where it's up to as far as, like we know if I looked at it, there was some issues with the state saying, oh, it's too hard, which is a total load of rubbish because every woman has a Medicare number. So if they use the Medicare numbers to track funding, you know, it, and it also seems to me for women who are like on borders and things like that offer a little bit more consistency, um, but, you know, um, I'm just a lay consumer. <laughs> like sometimes the bureaucrats almost seem they've got their head that far up their backside. They actually, like, you know, can't see the forest through the trees kind of stuff. Um, how long do you think or what do you think needs to happen to actually move towards this bundled funding? I mean, we can't sustain this system that incentivises the overuse of intervention uh, we can't sustain a system that doesn't provide equity. So when 
our poorer women aren't getting decent care, they're having poorer outcomes. Um, but also for those women who are wealthier, and it's usually the white middle-class women, they're also having to prop up the system financially with gaps and things like that. So whilst we have got more inequity down the bottom, we're still, you know, no one is actually getting served well by the current system. Where to from here? Yeah, and I think, so the subtext to all of this is it's the women having to quit the system. Um, so nowhere throughout this conversation uh, in terms of, sorry, as in the IPA conversation, not between you and I, um, but, but nowhere throughout uh, the IPA uh, conversation around potential barriers to the implementing of bundled funding, um, was there any real consideration uh, of what is best for women? And I think this is one of the very core issues that we have with the delivery of healthcare services, again, and not just necessarily within the maternity care, uh, is there's this view that the patient must fit the system that's provided. So there's very little real policy reform that seeks to turn that on its head uh, and really put consumers and women um, at the centre of care. Uh, so we've had successive maternity care reforms within Australia that speak to women-centred care. Um, but realistically, if you look at what that's actually provided to women, uh, the, the funding, uh, the policies, uh, and procedures, there is very little consideration um, of, of designing services wholly and solely around the consideration of women. So that there's always considerations of, you know, oh, we have a state-based system. So, you know, women live on the borders, they might be crossing between the system, um, you know, considerations about um, poor availability of data to be able to uh, capture the, the full costs of care. So these are, as you say, some of the, the barriers to the implementation of bundled funding. Um, but none of these actually speak to, okay, well, what's the real woman-centred need here? Um, and let's uh, break down those barriers and actually do it because it's the best, it's going to produce the best outcomes for women. Um, and I think that's really lacking um, from the debate. Um, and uh, at the moment, um, I apologise if I sound a little bit pessimistic, um, but, but I don't think bundled funding is going to happen at any time soon. I, I just don't think that there is that, um, uh, the, the drive for it, essentially. Um, I think, unfortunately, um, you know, change is incremental um, and we had an opportunity, I think, to implement and take bundled funding forward, um, but, but I think there was too many barriers and I, I don't, unfortunately, see a, a great, um, you know, um, within the short term anyway. Um, I don't unfortunately see that it's going to um, come back because there's been no um, you know, political will for it, essentially. Yeah, Sorry I to agree. sound pessimistic. No, but there, I, mean, I, I mean, it's in the Women-Centred Care Strategic Direction for Australian Maternity Services. We covered it in the MBS review of Participating Midwives. If I had, you know, that must have been three, four years ago now, um, and that was just for state-based. Like for those who don't understand, there's three buckets of money really that come into maternity care and, and the federal government gives states money to do what pretty much what they want. I mean, there's these like very loose contracts, but they really do what they want. Um, the federal government funds Medicare and then we have private health, which is actually propped up 30% by every taxpayer. So it doesn't matter if you pay 40 grand uh, or if, you, if you're getting paid 40 grand or 350,000, every single person who pays tax has to support 
part of health insurance. So it's a system that's going nowhere, but absolutely there's no innovation politically to actually grab onto this. I also think that medical lobbying, they are, are, are quite powerful and there's a huge resistance there because if we move away from activity-based funding, you've actually got almost like a set wage. And we know that in private obstetric care, there is huge, huge money. Like for those obstetricians booking in 800 women a year and women actually wouldn't even have a clue that there's 799 other women seeing that obstetrician a year. Like that's millions of dollars. And when we have such powerful medical lobbying um, up against uh, governments, like that, it comes down to votes as well, I think. Um, but it's interesting that the system doesn't fit women because the, the system actually doesn't even ask women how they felt about the service. Like there's no, you know, we're so, they're so focused on like cesarean and, and, you know, all these physical outcomes um, and all this data collection, like the weight of baby. And in all that, no one asks the woman how she felt about the care, what could be improved and, and what we want. I think that's a, a really important point too. And so um, New South Wales uh, conducts a maternity experiences survey, which is fantastic uh, and terrific. Um, but there's that real lack of actual, actual accountability um, in terms of, of the results. Um, and so how do you weigh um, the experience of a woman compared to uh, the cesarean section rate? Um, you know, how, how do you... Um, uh, weight uh, the uh, experiences of uh, a particular component of care, you know, relative to special care nursery admission rates. It's how do we weigh um, these experience factors with these more clinical factors? Um, clinical factors can be very tangible. They've got that link to safety. Of course, safety is vital and important, um, but we always seem to push back on experience, and, and that's a, you know, it's an of interest glance to say, oh, how are we tracking there? Um, but in terms of actually trying to create meaningful change based upon experience, um, I, I don't see that there is any reason essentially for providers to do so. So, of course, you know, we would assume that all providers do want to create a, a good experience, um, but really they're not held to account based upon experience. They're held to account on, on various safety measures and, and to an extent that's also quite loose as well. Um, um, but we don't actually have any means of accountability based on satisfaction and experience. We're very poor at even measuring satisfaction and experience. Um, so in terms of there being no standardised way of capturing what's um, uh, important from an, an experience perspective, um, based upon that, there's been no um, consideration for what women themselves consider to be important experiences. So um, although we do have experience questionnaires, to what extent they actually do reflect what women want to be measured and captured is also questionable. So it's, yeah. it's again, this lack of women being at the centre. And so I, I think that's why um, uh, consumer organisations that give women a voice are just so vital to all of this. Um, and so, again, I hate sounding like you know the, the pessimistic person but but that is really my um you know recommendation to the path forward there's 300,000 women that give birth in Australia every year we are a significant proportion of the population um, and so it's only by actually um giving an avenue for women's voices to be heard um that I really do see that any meaningful change can be advocated for
Yeah, and it's interesting because the surveys um, that you talked about, we've seen them and they're still just like, that's actually not what we want to be talking about. Yeah, They've just surveyed what they want to hear, not what they want us like. They don't actually want to hear from us. It's what it seems like. Um, and we've only got to look at the one-third birth trauma rates. Like I sit on the National Perinatal Data Committee and, you know, I see all the, you know, we're talking about mortality and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, at what point do you not realise that a third of women coming out of birth with trauma is, is discussing outcomes for this area of health? And why are we not finding out why and how women feel so we can reflect on practice and improve it? As a health economist, and I know this is one area, like it, it, it's easy to see when, when the numbers, you know, like I say a birth, a vaginal birth is like $4,000 a year and things like that, like where it's very tangible. But birth trauma is a little not as tangible, not for women, but to put a cost because it's like this, I don't know, vortex of nothingness that, that it's, it's not acknowledged often in the health system. Um, we don't track women well. We haven't surveyed them, so we often don't even know what, services they're accessing outside is there a way to actually find out the costs given that we've got a maternity system that costs like the government billions i'm assuming that the outcomes are also going to cost billions in in the poor outcomes yeah and i think that's a point oh, sorry, is a really good point is that they're not always intangible um, so we can see uh, that uh, antidepressants are one of the most common uh, prescription um, in the perinatal time period. Uh, we can see that presentations for mental health purposes following birth are one of the most common rehospitalization reasons. Uh, they're actually not quite intangible. They, these um, birth trauma, mental health, uh, long-term impacts uh, of the perinatal time period is very costly to funders and to women. Uh, and so, of course, it's very hard to put um, a dollar value um, on mental health or mental ill health and on experiences, but you can actually put a dollar value on the care that women seek as a result of that. Um, and so I think this is also part of the problem um, in terms of that we've historically had this focus on activity-based funding. And so we look at the individual activities. So we don't actually look at what's called value and, and what we're looking at the patient or the woman um, as this entity who does go through these different services. Um, they go to the uh, public hospital, they go to the GP, they'll go to all of these different services. Um, and they do attract um, costs at every time point. And so we need to move away from just um, looking at the cost of individual episodes of care and look at the entire cycle of care. So what is it actually costing over the first 1,000 days or over the first 2,000 days? So from the time um, of the onset of pregnancy to the time that child is age two or five or even beyond that, because um, that's one of the most um, amazing things about pregnancy and childbirth is that it has such a long-term impact um, upon the child but also the mother um, and, and so getting it right um, is amazing in terms of setting up a, a whole life for, for the child um, but getting it wrong has um, drastic and very costly uh, downstream impacts and we need to have more recognition um, in terms of our data reporting and our data capturing um, in terms of what these uh, long-term impacts are and it's very uh, possible in terms of we said before we all have a, um, a medicare number 
And so it's certainly possible from a, a data capture and data linkage point of view to capture these long-term outcomes and long-term effects. Um, what we don't see very well um, is patient-reported um, or woman-reported outcomes. Um, so, so we don't get a, a great sense of quality of life. So if a woman is suffering without accessing care, um, which we know is quite common in mental health, so there's uh, quite a, a large underdiagnosis rate, we unfortunately won't see those sorts of things. But we do see um, when women are, are going to hospital um, for major depression disorder, for um, significant anxiety. Um, we do see every time an antidepressant medication is prescribed, every time a psychologist is seen. So we can actually see that. So we can actually capture some of those long-term costs. And I think that's also a, a really important area of my work um, is being able to capture those long-term effects um, so, so we can show how investment within the perinatal time period really does have, have quite long-term consequences. Yeah, and I think though that Absolutely, I 100% agree. And there's like, there's so much focus and, and it's not even focus. It's like postnatal care is still the poor cousin of birth. Um, but after that six weeks is up, it's like, you know, there's so much disconnection in the service. Exactly, yes, like, you're on your own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, why it's such a problem. So we don't ask women anything really about how they're feeling and things like that. And then it's like six weeks, catch you later. Um, so, so actually there seems a bit to be as far as service delivery a fair bit of cognitive dissociation like I think there is this belief that and, and it is motherhood is tough absolutely tough but there seems to be cognitive dissociation with the way services are delivered and that the trauma is actually contributing to the depression and in almost every case when you talk to psychologists of a woman who presents with postnatal depression or anxiety um you know some of it is straight cut and dry you know PTSD but in almost every case of um, PNDA, that woman, the birth was a contributing factor. And we're just, mm -hmm. it, you know, it seems that the system, it's just too convenient to be ignorant on what the trauma that it's causing. Mm -mm -mm. But not only that, it, it comes back to the way that services are provided um, and funded. Uh, so, so even within the public hospital system, so you know, you, you've got your separate buckets of money funding public hospitals and, and out of hospital care, but then even within a, a single public hospital, um, everything is compartmentalised in terms of the funding flow. So, so the maternity services managers are given funding to provide care um, from the start of antenatal care through that six weeks postpartum. And then after that, any services um, that they uh, the women access is the responsibility of another department and so that other department will have the, the funding pressures or, or the funding flows associated with that and so there's no uh, I'm not going to say no, no incentive um, but, but there's no um, mechanism really for, for the maternity services managers to see what's happening downstream but also to get rewarded from that preventative um, health point of view for preventing negative adverse ongoing effects. So, so they would have the, the uh, bear the costs of, of providing preventative high quality healthcare services. Um, but in terms of prevention of those downstream costs, they don't reap any reward from that. So it comes back to, to this compartmentalized view um, and this lack of placing the woman um, and her journey at the center of everything. So, so we have um, compartmentalized funding flows at the macro level going to public hospitals, going to Medicare, um, and, and then within uh, Medicare and then within public hospitals, we have again this compartmentalization of budgets um, between um, pediatric departments, maternity services, neonatal, uh, neonatal um, departments, uh, and every department in the 
hospital. And so it's this lack of, and again, it's not just maternity services, it's all areas of healthcare. It's this compartmentalization of the delivery of care um, based upon you know, historical convenience um, that we see um, this situation where we are today, um, but where there's very little long-term um, accountability or long-term incentivizing preventative healthcare. Yeah, one, I mean, one maternity service or type of maternity care that we are aware that is preventative and saves money is continuing midwifery carer. Hard mm -hmm. to access in that, you know, depending on which state you're in, maybe 8 to 20% of women, the, the model varies a little bit as well. But can you talk to me like how much money that could save the government per year um, and obviously deliver better outcomes for women? Like women have been asking for this for decades. It's been in every state national review into maternity services that we've ever had as well. Yes, yes. So we hear over and over again that the need to provide continuity of care, that women want continuity of midwifery care specifically, um, but there does just seem this very um, slow and incremental change in that direction. Uh, and because um, continuity of midwifery care um, reduces intervention rates uh, uh, and improves the outcomes, it would, in terms of a a government funder, big macro picture point of view, saves significant amounts of money. Um, it's the most cost-effective um, intervention that we have um, for reducing cesarean section rates. Um, and so it literally saves millions, would save millions of dollars um, if it was routinely implemented. Um, however, we do see um, that there is significant barriers for maternity services, uh, service departments uh, in terms of actually implementing and providing the model of care. And so it's a, um, I do think that across the country, um, maternity services are wanting to provide um, additional um, uh, access uh, to continuity of midwifery care. But I do think that the funding system really is just working against that and is prohibitive to change. And so on the one hand, um, we have the need to provide ongoing care um, to, to the, um, the uh, uh, to the mix of women who are presenting, uh, and, and maternity services get funded based upon the activities that they provide. Um, but then there's that need to try to um, concurrently uh, switch the workforce model to, to this caseload model, um, where a certain number of women are, are provided for and cared for, um, which will of course reduce cesarean section rates. But it's this um, this awkward transition period um, that. I really do actually sympathise for in, in terms of maternity service managers in trying to, to juggle um, the, the current funding structure that we have where they are funded based upon the, the activities that they deliver um, but, but wanting to um, implement uh, total workforce change in terms of um, providing new models. And so at the moment, I think a real big issue is just the, the funding of that system. However, it's really important to note that if we had a medical technology, um, so, so a new device um, or a new drug, um, if it cost a little bit more, but it significantly improved quality of life, then of course it's going to be implemented. Uh, so, you know, um, uh, it, it's said to be worth the investment um, because it produces good value, um, it, it 
experience uh, so it's cost effective so it's sort of increased health outcomes although it does cost a little bit more but we don't see this willingness to provide um, that similar investment within maternity services um, and so if we were talking about a, a new you know, wonder drug that reduced cesarean section rates significantly um, improved neonatal outcomes improved experience and satisfaction um, potentially you know maybe reduced birth trauma rates um, that, that of course, uh, I, I would assume that it would be uh, funded and it would be implemented, but, but it's this very curious case with continuity of delivery care that it doesn't seem to be um, able to get that traction to be seen as worth the investment. So it's a very, um, it's a very curious case within healthcare that, that it just does seem to be one area that just does struggle to get tra uh, traction despite the very compelling clinical evidence that it does improve outcomes. Yeah, and huge medical lobbying backed by money, and you know it's it's hard because you know volunteer consumers, um, you know it, it really gets some of the reason why I started this podcast. Like, why mm -hmm. do women, you know, constantly, I guess, in this space, our wants and needs are ignored, and you know it's like follow really follow the money trail because it doesn't have good outcomes. Um, women have been asking for with free care we've been asking for like publicly available data we've been asking for bundled funding and it's sometimes it's, i wouldn't even say it's race or speed sometimes it's like regressive in this space um why do you think that first a forgotten feminist issue oh you were about to say something else why don't you say that okay. i sorry i was going sorry before we get to the other million dollar question though uh, i was going to say but it's also really interesting to note the rise of private midwifery um, because it, it seems that women are having to go to the market um, to be able to pay to access continuity of midwifery carer um, because it's simply not available um, to all women within the public system. Um, and so I think private midwifery is fantastic in terms of it gives some women a choice, but it's that it's the some women. Um, and so we're potentially introducing all sorts of inequality issues in Absolutely. who don't have private midwives working in their area, can't afford um, private Affordability midwives. Affordability is the biggest thing, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so I think it is really um, telling that there's been, you know, the rise of private midwifery is a thing because women can't actually get it in what should be um, a, a publicly provided model. And I think that is really interesting to see, you know, great that the service is there, um, but, but it, it's really been that the women have had to go and seek it out themselves and drive the change themselves um, rather than it actually being provided for, um, for women routinely. Yeah, and I think if we had like proper bundled funding that actually encompassed all models of care and not say just the public system, that there is that ability to dissolve the inequities that we see with private mm. care. Like it is, I mean, if you want a home birth, it's hugely expensive, like $5,000, mm. like out of, out of pocket, mm. that's not $5,000 yes. in Medicare. So, yes, yes, I mean, I'm yes. not saying it's not worth it because you talk to any woman, but at the same time, there's so many women who are very deserving of it yet can't afford can't afford to yes, yeah yes, and we can't yeah, have yeah, yeah. i mean we can't have private midwives working, working for nothing like it you know exactly yeah, yes, men yes, would yes, never yes, do it yes. <laughs> so yes but, but yes, yeah, yes, it's, yes. It's, um yeah so many reforms needed mm -hmm. and the, the potential creation of, of, of the dual system that we do see so those who can afford it are able to access the models that they want um, whereas those who aren't aren't able to yeah exactly why do you think births are forgotten feminist issues 
Um, because women um, are forced to comply with the system um, that is historically um, male and medical dominated. Um, we have very little real choice um, in, in what happens to us during pregnancy. Um, we are made to fit the system essentially. Um, and it's really sad, I think, that, you know, 300,000 women across Australia give birth. Um, you know, most women during their lifetime are expected to give birth. Um, pregnancy is not a chronic health condition. That's why I love working in this area. Um, you're, you're dealing with, you know, healthy women, mums and babies. Um, yet, despite that, we have very little say um, due to various um, institutional factors um, in, in where we give birth, uh, who provides care for us um, and what will actually happen to us um, during birth. Yeah, thanks so much, Emily. And I'll um, pop some links to some of your the, the research and the articles that I've seen you quoted in as well. All right, thank Lovely. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to work with me and some of my amazing short courses, I've got pre and postnatal yoga online. I've also got hypnobirthing classes for those in rural and remote locations. You can join via Zoom. And I've also got a new course called Mastering People Pleasing to Have an Amazing Birth. It's great for those who are perfectionist or reform perfectionists, that type A personality and those who've been indoctrinated um, into that people pleasing model. You can head to www.aliciastains.com.au for more info.